Well, welcome to Reached Up. Uh, my name is Robert, and I'm the lead pastor, and we have been working through the book of Acts through the summer, and uh, you want to find it in there if you haven't found it yet in the, the Bibles on your seat or your own Bible or your phone, um, because I'll have some of the passages on the screen, but a lot of them from chapter 8, you'll need to follow along uh, in the scriptures. Um, I've been calling this sermon series Ordinary Church, and why I'm doing that is I think this is part of what Luke, who writes the, the book of Acts, is arguing, that God, in the, the, the opening days of the church, was using just ordinary people, and has done that for the last 2,000 years. Um, that literally starts with the apostles themselves. These are the initial followers of Jesus that become uh, the, the first leaders, the first wave of leaders in the church. And when they have their first clash with uh, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, this is how Luke describes them, uh, describes the reaction of those uh, religious leaders to the apostles in Acts 4.13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, two apostles, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So even the initial leaders are seen as uneducated, ordinary kinds of people. And then last week we looked at uh, the, the person of Stephen, who was not one of the original uh, apostles, uh, but was one of seven people that were chosen to feed the widows in the church. So he had this very important job, but a job that was a task kind of a, a job. And then we read in Acts 6, last week, verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so we see Stephen, who is like, on the widow feeding team who's speaking with great power and great uh, wisdom. And then this week we have another non-apostle uh, by the name of Philip. And again, I, I think, you know, Luke could have put a lot of information about the apostles, and he does, there, there's information there, but he's very intentional about fronting these people that we've never heard of, people like Stephen and Philip, and we'll, we'll see more as, as we go. Um, and so when we look at a, a, like a character study, which is kind of what I'm doing, I'm kind of doing a character study with you that's in the form of a sermon, um, I think we, we reflect on it in a couple of ways, and so here's, here's the two ways I want us to think about it this morning is, one, what is being revealed out of Philip's story, because again, Luke is putting Philip in there for a reason. And then how do I personally respond to what's being revealed? So what's being revealed and then what, how, how do I respond? And that's where we'll end up at the end of this sermon. But most of this sermon is a meandering through this story. So we're going to look at pieces of it. I'm going to comment on it. And then we'll get to the end and we'll talk about reveal and respond. So um, Philip's beginning, as I said before, was he got picked to feed the widows of the church. And we know this from Acts chapter 6, verse 5, says what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, that's who we talked about last week, and Philip, okay, so he's like number two um, in the list there, and he's being, you know, brought to the forefront of the plot, not because he's well-educated, although he could be, we don't, we don't know, that's not really mentioned, he's not mentioned as someone with a religious pedigree of some sort or has some great political power maybe he did we don't we don't know that's not really uh, accentuated by by Luke there's no mention of him being a really gifted person uh, in any kind of way but like Stephen he's full of the spirit and full of faith and he he's full of the spirit which we said last week was he's attentive to the spirit as God's spirit is initiating with him He's open, he's, he's attentive. And then when he, he, he figures out, okay, this is what God's initiating with me, he says yes to it, which is the full of faith part, right? Full of the spirit, attentive to the spirit, full of faith, 
willing to say yes when God initiates by the Spirit. I think of being filled with the Holy Spirit like a water hose that's filled with water, right? You, you, you've maybe done this where you're, the, the, the shutoff valve is like really far from you and you want to shut the, the water off immediately because it's squirting you or something and you can kink the hose, right? You ever done that? It's bad for the hose, so don't do it. But, but if, if, you know, if, I'm sure you've done it. I've done it. Uh, you kink the hose and you can stop it for the, for the most part. And so I think of, of uh, being full of the Spirit as unkinking the hose, right? Letting the, letting the water flow, letting the Spirit flow. And when you say yes to God's initiation with you, it's like opening up the hose. When you say no, it's like kinking the hose. It's like saying, oh, I'm going to cut off the flow of the Spirit in and through uh, my life. And so people like Stephen and Philip are like, the hose is wide open. They're like, whatever you say, Lord, like I, I will say yes. And both of, these, uh, both of these people, we get to see God working through them in pretty extraordinary ways. Um, as we were saying last week, if, if you were here, um, chapter 8 is a moment where the church really goes through a very dark, difficult time because the, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, occurs. And so you've got this very loved and, and, and esteemed leader that um, is, is killed and uh, the church is going through a, a very difficult time. So this is described in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. You just heard read. Saul approved of his execution, his execution being Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and they made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So on the surface, this looks like worst case scenario. Like state-sponsored persecution with the use of lethal force. I mean, this is really difficult for the church. And they have not seen that until this, this moment uh, in terms of the, of the church uh, experience. But Luke is careful to report that God is actually at work through this really difficult experience. So Acts 8 verse 4, it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And he's using this word, uh, diaspora, which is being translated scattered in, uh, in this English uh, translation. He uses that twice, and he'll use it again uh, in, a, in, a, in a later chapter. And this is the only place that this word is used in the New Testament. And so you, you may have been recognizing, like, diaspora. That, se- that seems like diaspora. Yeah, it, 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 it is used in our vernacular, and it means what you think it means. It, it means the scattering, the spreading out of, of a people group, usually. And it's usually because of some kind of persecution, something bad's happening. And the Jews knew all about this. They had experienced a diaspora. They had been run out of their home country. They were exiled and made to live in places where they were not in their home. And, and so Luke is being very intentional of using this word to say that, that they're being scattered, the church is being scattered, and much the same way that God was very intentional in what he accomplished through the Old Testament diaspora, he's now accomplishing something through the New Testament diaspora. He's scattering them to share the gospel, through the preaching of the word. He'll la- later use the word again in Acts 11. He'll say, now those who were diaspora, scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. That last phrase, we'll have to get into that later, uh, why that is. So this concept of the people of God getting scattered, it's very familiar to the readers um, of the book of Acts, the the, the original uh, readers. And so one of the scattered is Philip. Uh, this is how this all ties into Philip. He's one that, that leaves Jerusalem, right? And so he had been a part of the Jerusalem church. He had been one of the seven that was uh, chosen to be a deacon to serve the widows. And so he's like very involved, very, very much a part of that community. 
and persecution breaks out and he's packing his bags and he's heading out. And so what does one do who just saw probably one of his best friends uh, stoned to death, uh, who's now watching like wide-scale persecution break out against his church? Uh, Here's what he does. Acts 8, verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So evidently what you do when one of your best friends is stoned to death and wide-scale persecution breaks out against your church is you go share the gospel with some Samaritans. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing that in, in this kind of dark moment in his life where he's in transition, he, he doesn't know what's next, he's having to literally run for his life and he finds himself with the, with the Samaritans and he's, well, here they are. They've never heard the gospel. I'm going to tell them about Jesus. I'm going to tell them about the good news about Christ. And if... Um, you know, you've done any kind of Bible background work. You, you probably would have studied about the, the Jews and the Samaritans, and there's a lot of bad blood. There's a lot of bad blood between uh, Jews and, and Samaritans in the first century. Think, think Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I mean, it's, it's this, and, and honestly, probably worse. Um, Samaritans were half Jewish, half something else. They also had some funky religious stuff going on that was not consistent with Jewish teaching. They were, they were Jewish-ish in their beliefs, but they had also adopted things that were not consistent with the Old Testament uh, Bible. Uh, partly that was because they weren't allowed to go to the temple and worship at the temple. So they kind of had to build their own temple and sort of make it up on, on their own. And so consequently, they had some things that were not uh, kosher, pun intended. Um, so... This, uh, this baggage that the Samaritans have doesn't seem to phase Philip. Who's, who's Jewish? He's Jewish, culturally. Um, he gets to the Samaritans and he proclaims Christ. He shares Christ with the Samaritans. Not only that, but he ends up doing some what Luke calls signs. These are miraculous things, which... Are these exorcisms and these healings. And, and Luke calls them signs because they're an arrow pointing to the gospel, right? They're not just, let's just make everybody's life better in the physical world. They are actual things that God does to help authenticate the message of the gospel. And so Philip, who was on the widow feeding team, much like Stephen, is now preaching the gospel and doing miraculous things that are helping to give some authentication to um, his message and he even mentions the result is joy like the, the, the city is like joyous because the, of all the, the things that are happening through Philip's ministry there does seem to be a lot of demon possession kinds of uh, stuff going on in the first century and this is attested to by the, the gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and Acts um, I think we're tempted to scoff at that, right? And, and, and go, you know, these people, they don't know the difference between a seizure and Satan. Like, they're, they're superstitious, they're pre-modern. Like, they think everything is a demon or an angel or something. And there's some truth to that. But on the other hand, they may have more of a holistic understanding of reality than we do. Like, our bias, I know, it's hard to believe, we're biased, but we are we default to secularism, not superstition, for the most part. Um, unless we're sports fans, and then we go superstition. But that's a that's another another conversation. Um, and so we're slow to acknowledge or be aware of the spiritual dynamic. Right? So we want to be careful that we don't um, kind of scoff at these pre-moderns and and dismiss them out of hand. What I've noticed in a secular environment is that Satan sort of keeps himself hidden. Um, He's happy to cause terrible suffering in the lives of people and remain under the radar. 
And, and so I think oftentimes we see things in, in our day and age that, that are spiritual, but we don't have the spiritual category for them. Oftentimes it's a, what we might call a complex of things. It's, it's mental, it's drug-related, it's uh, also spiritual. And it's just one kind of composite that uh, we see uh, in our world. And so, you know, Austin is certainly a place where there's lots of secularism, but it's also a place where there's lots of spiritualism as well. Um, this, is, this is not just this, a secular kind of place, even though we have a, a major university here. Um, there's a lot of different kinds of spiritualism here. Um, and so when you are in a place where there's lots of, of spiritual things, there's, there's false religion and di- different practices, um, there is going to be these kinds of manifestations. Um, and we saw this in uh, our church ministry in Massachusetts, uh, where people were messing around with spiritual things. Uh, they didn't really know what they were messing around with, and then they would bump up against satanic stuff, demonic stuff. They didn't have a category for it. Um, And they would show up at our church and then we'd be able to help them understand the category and then get get the help that they needed. Um, And I wouldn't be surprised if this is part of our own ministry here. I don't know that for a fact. I'm not looking for it. Um, But we are picking a fight with the spiritual world. You you show up somewhere and you say, we're going to start a church. That's picking a fight with the spiritual world. And, and so we just need to be aware of that. We don't need to be afraid of it. We need to be aware. We need not default to our sort of societal secularism. We, we need to be prayerful. We need to be aware of the spiritual uh, side of things. And if, as I'm talking, you're like, oh, that's what's going on. Reach out. Let's talk. Let's pray. Like, like there's, there's freedom in Christ from these kinds of things. And partly I mention this, this is kind of like a side to the sermon even, but I mention it, one, so that you can be aware of it and you can help people. Like, like if, if, if these are the things that people are struggling with, you can actually help them. And then two, when people get free from demonic you know, influence, it's a sign of the power of the gospel. We've also seen this, where, where people have gotten freedom from the things they were experiencing in, in, the, in the demonic oppression. And it points to Jesus because they realize, oh, it's, it's Christ that has brought about the freedom. That's what's happening through Philip's ministry. He's not just running around casting out demons. He is casting out demons and is pointing to the authenticity of the good news about Jesus, the gospel. Um, it... it, it, it Really, in the city, it takes such a such a hold. The gospel does that even a local practitioner of magic professes faith in Christ. Now, he has some issues later on that I'm not even going to go into. But but here's what happens in Acts 8, verse 9. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, "This man." is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, partly this is, a, this is a window into the Samaritan spirituality because I've said before, they're kind of Jewish-ish in their beliefs, but they're also practicing magic. They've, they've also got, you know, Simon, who's, who's this kind of like this magician that they're going to and seeking spiritual help uh, and power. Again, not all that different than Austin, Texas. Like, it, 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 it is not surprising. <laughs> you bump into someone, it's like, I'm Baptist, I check my horoscope every day, and I don't want to speak anything into the universe that's negative, right? And it's like, whoa, what just happened? Like, like is this this hodgepodge of spirituality that is Christian-ish, but then it's also got a lot of other stuff that's kind of mixed in. And I think the Samaritans are very, very similar in that, in that way. 
But the Holy Spirit is not wringing his hands like, oh my gosh, how can we you know, reach these Samaritans? They're so messed up. And the Holy Spirit knows exactly what to do and he sends this ordinary Christian named Philip in the power of the Spirit to bring the gospel and he reaches this, this city. Um, now word gets back to HQ in Jerusalem and they send Peter and John. We've got to check this thing out. These Samaritans becoming Christians? I mean, really? I, does this happen? Um, Acts 8, verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them and they might, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So Peter and John come down, um, and they start talking to these Samaritans, and they're thinking, well, they seem like Christians. Like, they, they believe about Jesus, that he died for their sins, and that they need that for, for forgiveness, and they put their faith in that, but they don't seem to have the Holy Spirit, right? And this is not how... God does this every time, and even in the book of Acts, sometimes the Holy Spirit is given to the convert immediately, and sometimes there's like this wait, sort of a waiting period, and then they were given the Holy Spirit. Um, and so in this instance, there's a waiting period, and so Peter and John are like, oh, you don't have the Holy Spirit. So then they put their hands on these Samaritans, and they see the Holy Spirit come in to, 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 to dwell in these Christians. And this is important for Peter and John. I think this is mostly for Peter and John. <laughs> they need to see this. This is like a mini Pentecost in the Samaritan area. And we'll see it again in a Gentile-only kind of area. We'll see another little mini Pentecost. And again, it's, it's for Peter and John, I think, for, for the most part. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting because Luke reports in the Gospel of Luke which again, Luke writes Luke and Luke writes Acts. He, he reports back in chapter 9 that there was a, an experience that James and John had. So the John of Peter and John has a brother named James. And they were doing some ministry with Jesus. And they went to a Samaritan village. And the Samaritan village was like, we're not interested. And James and John are walking away from the village with Jesus. And they go, hey, Jesus you want us to pray to God and call down fire on the Samaritans for rejecting you? This is, this is their love for the Samaritans. <laughs> so man, John's come a long way, right? He, he, he's laying hands on these Samaritans and he's seeing the Spirit of God transform these into brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, apostles leave. Uh, Peter and John leave. It's, Luke tells us that they then start sharing the gospel with the Samaritan, other Samaritan towns and villages as they go back to Jerusalem. Which again, they had not done this. It had not dawned on them that they should have packed it up and gone and talked to some Samaritans. It's Philip. It's ordinary little widow-feeding Philip who gets this thing going. Right? And it's moved outside of Jerusalem for the first time. And it's happened through Philip, and it's even affected the apostles in how they are pro proclaiming uh, the gospel. So now that Philip has kind of taken this step to uh, be full of the Spirit, full of faith, uh, go across culture with the gospel, go into a city that really, I'm sure, felt uncomfortable to him and bring the gospel there, uh, God then has another assignment for him. And it's even more uncomfortable. Um, Acts 8, verse 26. It was now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So there's so much going on here. I mean, Luke is just giving you so many facts uh, and details there. So now we've got an angel talking to Philip. And angels show up in the book of Acts. Um, 
And they tend to show up in general at times when God's doing something new. He's getting something launched, getting something started. Um, and so here he's appearing through angels at, at, at some different times in the book of Acts. And this is, this is one of them. And the angel says to Philip, I want you to go to the road that's on the way from Jerusalem to Gaza. And, it's, and Luke even mentions it's a desert place. Like this is not, there's no Starbucks there. Like, it, like it's not a, a place you would probably want to go. But, but Philip's like, okay, you want me to go there? I'm going. He doesn't even know why he's going. Right? There's no details. Um, now, Luke gives us details about this Ethiopian, and uh, that he's Ethiopian, which means he's 800 miles away from home. He has traveled 800 miles to get to Jerusalem to worship in Jerusalem at the temple. So he's not Jewish, but somehow he's, had, he's been affected by some Jewish uh, folks that have introduced him to the God of the Bible. And we don't know all the backstory. I wish we did. That'd be amazing. Uh, we don't know the backstory, but somehow he became a believer in the God of the Bible, and he, he has traveled 800 miles to worship in Jerusalem at uh, the temple. And he is a eunuch, meaning he's castrated. And the reason he's castrated is because he works for the queen in Ethiopia. And this is something that they would do in the ancient world. Uh, especially men that were, were working with very important women, uh, they would castrate them so that they wouldn't be a sexual threat to the queen or to whoever it is that they were working with. It's rough. Yeah, you thought your onboarding was rough. Um, that's some tough onboarding. Um, and so he's on the queen's accounting team, right? Like, like, like he is in charge of the money. He's, he's, he's evidently well-respected. He is trusted. Uh, he's got freedom to come and go. I mean, who gets to like go off of work and get in a chariot and go 800 miles? Like, like he can, he's got some freedom. So, so this guy has some freedom. And, and we, again, we don't know how he ends up worshiping uh, the God of the Bible, but he has some means, so much so that he even has a scroll of the Bible. No one in the ancient world had a scroll of the Bible except the priests at the synagogue or the temple. Like, no one, I mean, hardly anyone would have had the means to do that. It's not like there's printing presses and Barnes and Nobles. Like, like this, is, this is not very common, but somehow he has used his, his money to get a scroll, or maybe more than one, who knows. Um, and he's reading, we know from Luke, not from, like Philip doesn't know this yet, but Luke knows, uh, the narrator, that he's reading Isaiah. Right? So those are a bunch of details that Luke, the storyteller, is giving us to set us up for the next part. Verse 29 of Acts 8. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So again, Philip... He, he said, full of the Spirit and faith. I mean, he just keeps showing us that he is willing to say yes. And the Spirit is like, hey, why don't you run alongside that chariot with that really uh, rich, rich person who seems to be, you know, of a totally different uh, culture, ethnicity than you. Like, why don't you just run alongside? And Philip's like, oh, yeah. And he's running alongside. And little does he know, but in the providence of God, this Ethiopian eunuch who is... 800 miles away from Jerusalem is reading the book of Isaiah. And so I'm thinking Philip is running alongside and he's like, hey, what are you reading? He's like, I'm reading Isaiah. And he's like, oh God, man, this is awesome. <laughs> this is amazing. That this Ethiopian is a prepared receiver of the gospel. Right? Like, like he, he has some of the background to understand who Jesus is. And not only is he reading Isaiah, He's reading Isaiah 53, verse 32 of Acts 8. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. This is part of Isaiah 53, which 
There's no more overt passage of Scripture in the Bible, in the Old Testament, about Jesus, especially his death and burial and resurrection, than Isaiah 53. And the guy's reading Isaiah 53. You know, again, Philip's like, oh man, this is a softball. Like, this, this is amazing. This guy is reading about Jesus overtly in the Old Testament. And so Philip doesn't take any time to begin engaging the man about Christ. Right? Verse 34 of Acts 8. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about anyone else or someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now, Luke is being really intentional here to, to let us know that the way that, that Christ is being revealed to this Ethiopian eunuch is through the Bible. It's through the scripture. And this is, this is a story that Luke wants to tell multiple times um, in, his, in the book of Acts, but also even in his gospel. He reveals that Jesus himself wants to tell the good news about himself through the Bible. So places like Luke 24, verse 44, um, this is, Jesus says to them, These are my words, and I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he, Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Luke's the only gospel writer that tells us that story of the resurrected Christ doing Bible study with the disciples. Even though he's died, buried, raised, they know the, they know the gospel, like they've seen the gospel with their own eyes. And Jesus is like, yes, that is important, and you are witnesses to this, but I want to show you from the Bible. And so Luke, Luke wants us to see that, and he wants us to see that in, in the Luke 24. He wants us to see it here in the, the, the description of the Ethiopian unit. So here's how the story wraps up. Now back Acts 8, verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So it's quite, quite an ending of this story. Um, they're, they're going along. Evidently, the, the, the Ethiopian um, has heard enough about Christ to have put his faith in Christ. I don't know how he knows about Christian baptism. Probably Philip was telling him, okay, first thing you got to do after you become a Christian, you get baptized. And he's like, okay, well, we're on this road to Gaza, you know, to Gaza and it's really dry. Oh, wait a minute, here's water. Philip, what do, you, what do you say? Is there anything that prevents me from being baptized? Now, that is a very poignant question. Because, okay, he's different culture, different race. Even different, probably different socioeconomic. I mean, they, they live in a world where there's so many barriers, right? And he's saying, can I be a part of this? Can I be a part of Jesus and his church, which is what baptism is communicating, right? Adjoining with Jesus and adjoining with his church. And man, Phil doesn't, he doesn't waste a second. He's down in the water with him. And he's baptizing them. And, and, and then he comes out of the water. And Philip is transported from that little spot on the road to Gaza to Azotus, which is about here to Georgetown, okay, about 30 miles. And he is sort of reconstituted in Azotus. So why, why does that happen? I don't know. I, I mean, it's, it's a kind of a cool, crazy story. The apostles didn't get to do that. Philip got to do that, right? And it certainly was a sign of authentication to the Ethiopian eunuch. Can you imagine that? Like, 
pastor's baptizing you and brings you out of the water and then the pastor's gone? Is he in Georgetown? I, 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 yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's never happened to me. I've done a lot of baptisms and it's never, it's never happened uh, to me. But, but Philip is quick to answer the Ethiopian's um, eunuch's question. Is there anything that hinders me doing this? And the answer is no. There's, there's nothing. There's nothing racial, nothing cultural, nothing socioeconomic, none of it. You, you are a brother in Christ. And it takes him down in the water and brings him back up. Um, we, we get to see Philip one more time in the book of Acts. I think this is one of my favorite things about the, the story of Philip, is that he pops back up in Acts 21. Um, and this is describing... Um, Luke and Paul and their little team that are traveling. And so it's, it's, it's sort of an aside to the book of Acts, but I think, I think, Luke, I think Luke really wanted us to, to, to see this about Philip. So Luke 21, I mean, sorry, Acts 21, verse 7, says, when he had finished the voyage, when we had finished the voyage, so Luke's talking about him and the apostle Paul, from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So it sounds just like some travel details, you know, <laughs> like a little side notes here. Um, one, Philip has a nickname now. He's the evangelist. I mean, yeah, <laughs> he is. He, he, he was the one who got the gospel out of Jerusalem and into Samaria. He, he took the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch and baptized one of the first Gentiles to ever receive the gospel. He is Philip the evangelist. And evidently he met a woman in Caesarea, settled down, had four daughters, and raised his babies to love Jesus. And these four girls have... have, have grown up loving Christ and being his disciple, that's also pretty awesome, right? And that they are exercising their gifts, their gifts of prophecy in the church, right? And so we get to see this little, little snapshot of an ordinary Christian used in extraordinary ways by God, including raising his babies to love Jesus. And we don't, we don't know the, if the wife's there or not there, but uh, we know Philip has been faithful. And so let's, let's think about this. I think there's a lot of things revealed here through this story, and I'm not going to give an exhausted, exhausted list, but um, let's talk about some of these things. So one thing that seems to come to the surface is God is a missionary God. Like God is on the mission. The, the, the church is, is not like planning. I mean, they should be, but they're not. They're not like, okay, how are we going to get the gospel out of Jerusalem in Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth? But God is. God has a plan. God is initiating with his church and getting the gospel out. He's a missionary God. And we see this in the book of Acts of starting with uh, even the Pentecost in Jerusalem is being communicated, the gospel is being communicated in multiple languages uh, to, to people from different Places. And then we see it in Philip moving out to Samaritans and then to the Ethiopian eunuch. And that story is just going to continue as we go through the book of Acts. So God is a missionary God. God is accomplishing his mission through the proclamation of gospel truth. And we see this in Philip's story. It's not the only place we see it, but we see it in this story. He's proclaiming Christ. He's, he's not just trying to make the physical lives better of the people in, you know, the, for the Samaritans, but he... He is doing some of that, which is demonstrating the gospel, but he is proclaiming Christ, and he's doing that to the Samaritans, he's doing that to the Ethiopian eunuch. God is using the Bible. I think this is important. God is using the Bible to reveal Christ to people. Um, God is using ordinary people to proclaim Christ. They're the ones on, on the mission. Um, even the apostles themselves are seen as common, ordinary uh, people. And then number five, God is using the supernatural assistance of the Holy Spirit to empower these ordinary people to do these extraordinary uh, things. And so th those are just 
a few little things I think are being revealed in, in the story. And, um, and I think, this, this, when you, when, again, when you do a character study, you're kind of reflecting on their lives and reflecting, okay, what is it about these folks that the, 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 the biblical writer is wanting to show me? Right? And I think that this is just a, a beginning list. There's many other things that we could talk about. So how can we respond to some of those things? How can we respond to the truth that God is a missionary God? And one is, is just worship him. Like, how, did, how is it that we, if, if you're a Christian, how did you hear the gospel? The missionary God sent people to you to bring the gospel to you. That's cause for, for great gratitude and thanksgiving and praise and worship of, of the missionary God who made sure that the gospel got to us. It may be that this morning the missionary God is pursuing you, <laughs> that you've not yet become a Christian. And, and this good news about Christ dying in your place, offering you forgiveness for your sin, offering you a new relationship, like this is coming to you and, it, and it's dawning on you. Receive that by faith. And we'll fill this thing up and baptize you. Okay, so, it, but, hey, the time's now. Receive this by faith or at least get on the journey of exploring it reading some scripture, thinking more about what it would mean to be a Christ follower. We respond to the, uh, the, the understanding that this is a gospel mission um, by communicating the gospel to others. Right? We want to communicate this good news about Christ and what he's done for us and to, to, to share that um, with others. Um, we want to use the Bible Right? You want to use the Bible to bring Christ to people, which means you need to get some exposure to the Bible. Um, the uh, interesting thing about this is when Philip runs up against, you know, runs next to the, the chariot and he's talking to the Ethiopian eunuch, he knows the book of Isaiah. <laughs> when he hears that he's reading Isaiah 53, he's like, oh, Isaiah 53. Let me talk to you about Jesus from Isaiah 53. The, the guy knows his Bible. We saw this in Stephen's life last, uh, last week. Stephen, knows, he knew the Bible. Right? So, so part of being able to, to be full of the Spirit and full of faith is getting to know your Bible. If you don't know where to start, start Luke Acts. Like, it's like a two-volume set. Read, some, read the Gospel of Luke. Read, read Acts. And begin your journey there. Um, how do we respond to this idea that God's using ordinary people? Well, be open <laughs> to God using you for the Spirit to use you in the lives of other people and, and use the Bible. Use the Bible. Um, I think this is one of the things we, we feel like, well, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I speak well enough or I can't you know, do a, a slick enough presentation about Jesus. No, just expose people to the Bible. Right? Like, take the pressure off yourself. Put it on the Bible, which is what God would prefer anyway. He doesn't need slick salesmen, okay, or saleswomen. He 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 wants to to, to, to present the gospel through um, the Bible. I, I, when this was like dawning on me, this is back in the uh, back in the nineties. I was reading this book called Living Proof uh, by Jim Peterson, and he was talking about how people come to be. Come, you know, come to believe in Christ and become a Christian. And he had these little, um, these little, little schematics here where he was like, okay, we got this person who doesn't yet know Christ and we want them to, to, to come to know Christ, to, be, to become a Christian. And, but there's this distance. And how does, how does this distance um, get traversed, right? And, and I think sometimes we think, go back, Thank you. Um, we, th we think, oh, well, it's my slick sales presentation. And they hear it one time and they go, I'm a Christian. And sometimes that does happen. I think it's rare. I think it's really rare. Um, and what, what Peterson says, it looks more like this next slide, which is, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I come in contact with a Christian um, and probably some Christian community. And I start to think, oh, Huh, all that stuff that I thought about Christians that was really super negative, 
Um, or I just didn't even know anything about Christianity. I'm starting to think maybe there's something to this. Right? And, you know, as, as Christians, we believe the Holy Spirit is working in that person's life, drawing that person to Christ. But where the, the next stop is, is more exposure to the Bible. Right? And so instead of an invitation to our slick presentation, it's more, hey, do you want to you explore this more? You want, you want to study a, a book of the Bible and, and just meet together and talk and have coffee and ask questions? And like, I've got questions too. Let, like, let's, let's get together. And just let God's spirit use God's word to draw people to faith. And I honestly think this, this is more normal. This is more typical than this kind of one and done sort of presentation. Um, and, and so what happens, uh, can happen, is that after some exposure to Scripture, go ahead, move the next one, then uh, you still have Christian and Christian community in the person's life. The Holy Spirit is still at work, but now the Word of God is at work in the person's life as well. And I would suspect that most of you who are Christians in the room, this is, this is your story to some degree. You were exposed to the Bible over some time. You read it. You thought about it. You prayed. You asked questions. You wrestled with it. But you were in Christian community. You, were, you had some folks you could work through your questions with, talk, pray. Um, you didn't know the Holy Spirit was working on you, but he was. And eventually, Christ was revealed to you and you became a Christian. And so I, I say that not to disparage a presentation of the gospel, but we've actually, we've, we've kind of practiced some of this on Wednesday nights, okay? But to give you a little more of a, maybe fire up your imagination for how it is that someone who seems far, far from Christ would ever come to faith in Jesus. And it's typically a fairly long <laughs> process, and it usually includes some long-term exposure to the scripture. And just you're just letting the Bible through the Spirit reveal Christ to the person. And then the fifth thing, um, responding to this understanding that the, the Holy Spirit is the one who is uh, doing the work, who is initiating with us, who is leading us. Um, I want to say a couple things about, well, how do I cultivate that kind of sensitivity? It looks pretty easy for Philip. Right? Like he seems like he's got this down. But thinking about my own life, and I'm going, well, how do I do that? I hadn't had many angels stopping off, you know, at my apartment lately. Um, what, what exactly do I do as a Christian to try to cultivate that kind of, of um, sensitivity to the Spirit? So uh, one thing um, is how you start and, and end your day, right? So if you, if you start your day prayerful, which I know, schedules are tight, could be a five-minute thing. You're just saying, okay, God, I'm open, I'm available, and you're reading some of God's word, right? And you're saying, Lord, I'm, I'm open, right? As opposed to just like scrolling on your phone, which is what most of us do. <laughs> That's our devotional. We're just scrolling on Instagram, and then we go to work. But, but no, like having a moment, could be five minutes, could be longer, but you're saying, okay, Lord, reading this scripture, maybe you're reading through Acts because we're preaching through it, whatever. And then you're prayerful. You're like, Lord, I'm, I'm available. I, I, if you got something for me, if you need me to go to Gaza and talk to an Ethiopian eunuch, I'm, I'm your man. I'm your woman. Like, let's do this thing. Right? And I'm telling you, <laughs> he'll meet you. He'll meet you in that. Right? So how you start your day, then how you end your day. And one of the, one of the things you can use to, to end your day, and I kind of do this kind of hodgepodge, but I think it's helpful to have like a little framework sometimes to, to kind of get you started. This is called the prayer of examine. And the prayer of examine is an old, ancient, kind of monastic kind of, kind of prayer structure. But I think it's helpful. And so at the end of the day, asking, okay, God, give me, give me some light. Give, give me some perspective on what just happened over the last, you know, 12 hours of my day. Because it just, usually just rushes by. So like, okay, Lord, help me let me reflect on this. And then giving thanks. 
for the good things and the things that, that happened over the day. Thank you for this. Thank you for this relationship. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for this provision. Thank you for this job I have. Thank you, thank you, you know, just the things. And then reviewing the opportunities that were either, that, that you made or you missed. Like asking the Lord, hey, were there things today that I just totally, I just missed it. Like you put, you put the Ethiopian eunuch in my path and I just, I just was so focused on something else. I just totally missed it. Could you help me see that? And then what opportunities did I say yes to? Were you initiating with me? And so some, some reflections, some review of that. And then that just, and these I think easily roll into each other, right? Then, then there's some confession. <laughs> it's like, Lord, I'm confessing you. Not, not just sin, like things I did against you, but like shortcomings, deficits, immaturities, th- things that are, are just needing growth. Like, God, help me. Help fill this in me. I miss that. It's not a condemning thing. It's not a shame-producing thing. You're talking to your loving Father, and he's helping you to see the course of the day. And then reflect on the day to come. So you're thinking about, okay, what, what do I have tomorrow, Lord? Let me see this through your lens. Like, not, not just my agenda, my thing, my to-do list. What's your, what's your to-do list tomorrow? What's going on tomorrow? Who am I talking to tomorrow? Who, who am I encountering tomorrow? What's on your mind, Lord? And, and so how you start your day, how you end your day can be helpful um, to cultivate that spiritual sensitivity. And then just being in spiritual community like you're doing right now. This is cultivating your sensitivity to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit uses ordinary means is what these are sometimes called. These, these are not really showy and flashy, right? We don't, got, we don't have any smoke machines. There's no laser lights. I mean, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty low-key kind of thing here. But we, 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 have, we have songs that we sing that point to Jesus, and we preach a sermon that points to Jesus, and we take this bread and cup and it points to Jesus. These are the ordinary means of the Spirit. And so when, when we do these things together, the, the Spirit is like all about it. He's like, I, I, can, I can use that. I, I can draw near to you as individual believers, but also as a spiritual community. So this is, this is part of cultivating that sensitivity from the Spirit.